A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 147 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the old defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. And with me, like the Anakin Star Killer to my General Skywalker, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Good to be here, as always. Feels like so long sometimes between recordings when we record a few together back to back and so forth and come together and. It's kind of similar to what we'll be doing here for you Beyonders. You guys are going to get a taste, uh, you know, three or four episodes of one big project here. So as we get into that, anything else before we jump into our fun? No, other than expect weird and, in my opinion, kind of dull when it comes to this particular topic. Maybe not dull discussion, but wow, this really, it it does a bang up job. it as a substitute for Z-Quill in trying to put you to sleep. <laughs> Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode we explore Dark Horse Comics' The Star Wars, based on the original rough draft screenplay by George Lucas. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yes, The Star Wars. Uh, This is an oddity. Okay, just straight off the bat, it's an oddity. You get a series here that's eight issues, plus there is a zero issue that acts as a combination of sketchbook, behind the scenes, and kind of uh, something along the lines of the number zero or number one half issues that we got for things like Legacy. By the way, I guess while we're talking about that, just as a side note here, uh, if you are trying to have a complete collection of all the Legacy stuff, both Volume 1 and Volume 2, don't forget that they just released the trade paperback for Empire of One, the last of the Legacy Volume 2 trade paperbacks, and it includes the full text of that number zero and a half issue from Legacy Volume 1, right, with Cade Skywalker and all, but it added in a handful of new pages to set up events for Legacy Volume 2, albeit only pages that really deal with any kind of the happenings that we see in, I want to say it's what, the first or maybe first and second storylines of that series. There's not a whole lot to it. Not sure if those new pages are actually worth buying the trade paperback, but for me, being a completist in that sense, I went ahead and picked it up, uh, so it is now part of 
my collection too. This series has something like that. You got your eight issues, then a zero that acts as sort of that that weird guidebook type of thing while focusing in a lot of ways on the development of the artwork and such. Mm -hmm. Uh, Years ago, I went through and read all of these early drafts and did summaries for them on the Star Wars Timeline Gold. You can now find it, right, StarWarsFanWars.com slash Timeline. Go to the Timeline Gold. Go to the Appendices file. There's a whole section on the early draft scripts, uh, the synopsis, then this, the original rough draft, and then the first draft, and so on and so on, and how it changes. You can also find information about these different drafts if you picked up uh, Rinsler's book, The Making of Star Wars, because there are sections, whether you're looking at it in book form or in iBook form, that has all those cool multimedia things built into it. It's got sections that goes through a summary of each different draft and then ends it with sort of a bullet point list of the things that had been set in stone for the later film uh, based on that particular draft. So it's this cool experiment in seeing what these early drafts look like, how they compare to the final draft, how the original film developed so much over time. That being said, though, as a comic book, we need to be able to measure this on the merits of its story by itself, too. And I will say that while the artwork by Mike Mayhew is really, really cool, it really has the feel of uh, almost in some cases being photorealistic or very close to it. It feels like It's an adaptation of a feature film. It feels as though the artwork uses photo models constantly, which is very, very cool. The artwork is great. The story, not so much. And that's not Rinsler's issue. That, in a lot of ways, is Lucas's issue. If you go back and actually read the scripts, the pacing of Lucas's early drafts are horrible. They drag on, they drag on. There's way too many terms thrown in there meant to, in some cases, feel like it's confusing. The whole hero's journey concept is barely existent, if there at all, and it really does feel like Flash Gordon. It feels like the type of film or type of story that you would see on Mystery Science Theater 3000 with a bunch of shadows in front of it, mocking it the entire time. That doesn't make it a horrible story, but the pacing is terrible, and it is far more old Saturday morning serial-esque than anything that we got with the actual films. It's the type of story that, while it might have made a fun film back in the day, I would argue that, uh, at least based on the way that it is captured here, if this had been the Star Wars that we got back in 77, we wouldn't still be talking about it today. The phenomenon that is Star Wars within our culture would not exist. Now, that being said, by definition, that's going to mean that this comic series... If the draft is that, meh, the comic series pretty much has to be too. Um, Kudos to them for being able to pull this off. It's a cool experiment and unique within all of Star Wars publishing. It's a great project for Dark Horse to have done and a fun exploration of early versions of the Star Wars saga. Is it a good comic series to read for entertainment? Not really. And again, I think that's more on Lucas than it is on Rinsler and Mayhew. Well, and with that one, I got to I mean, I agree with you and yet disagree with you. I mean, I think there's a level of entertainment you can look at here. I mean, for me, it was more the look into what it was. I I think for you, because you'd already done that with your timeline and stuff, it was probably well, like you knew a good chunk of this kind of stuff. But for me, it was like it was exciting to see what could have been. And and in that regard, this was this was cool. You know, I mean, you know, as as champion of the multiverse, this is like our first 
alternate universe off of Legends, which was a parallel universe as per Lucas. But it's cool to see, you know, the changes of what was to what we got. I agree with you. You know, if this was what we saw on film, Star Wars would have been a much harder sell. Uh, it does definitely have the Flash Gordon feel to it. I like the samurai look to things. Uh, the fact that there are character names that I do recognize even from Legends and stuff like that that were reused later. Because that's something that, that Star Wars, the saga, canon, and even Legends has done. is They've taken things from these earlier scripts. Taken little concept drawings that, you know, McQuarrie has made and things like that. And they, they incorporate it and they turn it to use in their way. So this is kind of like the opposite of that. You know, you're seeing things that like you're recognizing, but in, in they're presented in ways that you'd never seen before. Like Darth Vader isn't a Knight of the Sith. There's someone else that's a Knight of the Sith. And you know, that Anakin Sky Skywalker is actually Anakin Starkiller. And he's being trained by general Luke Skywalker, who's much older. And I, I just, the whole aspect of how that worked and, and the fact that Anakin had a younger brother and, and, you know, you mentioned the pacing and, I have to agree. I mean, I, I think Dark Horse did a really cool thing by, by adapting it for a comic, but it's also clear that, you know, George's mind, doesn't, it doesn't really work in the comic medium very well. You know, the pacing, you know, you mentioned how a lot of things were rushed. At the same time, I felt like a lot of scenes were, were jumping along. Like, there were a couple times where I had to go back and was like, whoa, when when did White Sun join him? You know, I mean, like, there was like a message where, you know, General Sarkio was like, go get White Sun, and then all of a sudden he's with them in the next group. It was like, whole scenes were missing, and, and I... I attribute that to, you know, it's a comic. They got to do comic pacing. If it was a movie, they would have probably shown that scene with him showing up and stuff like that. Uh, but there were some cool twists all the way through it. So for me, I, I found the entertainment came from the discovering what could have been. Uh, overall, it isn't a story that, that it, you know, it's no dark empire. You know, it's more dark times. Um, or maybe even more like buyer's market. is isn't necessarily something you need. But it was a cool glimpse, and I like the fact that they offered it. You know, I mean, as a, as a Legends fan, that keeps me hopeful that maybe, you know, someday they could do something similar and keep stories with Legends going. Because I like the fact that this wasn't set in Legends, it wasn't set in canon, and it wasn't intended to be. And it worked in that regard. You know, yeah, it wasn't the best story, but again, you know, for those fans that love George Lucas and stuff, this is the story. This is where it came from. This is your spawn point. So, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting to give fans that glimpse of things. And if you are a fan of Lucas's stuff and you haven't taken the journey to his earlier stuff to see how his creative process is always evolving, that there has never been a vision of Star Wars from day one and that what we got on films was it. It's very interesting in that regard. You know, so it's kind of cool to, to kind of peek behind the curtain. And that's that's kind of what we get with this. And you'll notice that even though this was never meant to be within any kind of continuity, it is obviously something that is sort of its own alternate universe, right? As it says on the cover of the first one, longer ago in a galaxy even further away, there is not an Infinity's label to be found yeah. on this. It is as though they got to the point where they were near the end of the run of everything, and granted these do say, based on George Lucas' original rough draft screenplay on the cover, so that should be the giveaway that, yeah, this isn't within continuity, but it's like they got kind of near the end and they were like, you know what, that Infinity's label was never quite used consistently anyway, it confused people, so screw it, we're not going to put it on this and confuse people. Yeah, yeah, I could see that too, I mean, it, it, it well, because I, I look at Infinity's as something that falls within Legends mostly, so I mean, it's like, yeah, some stories never were meant to, but at the same time, it was presented in that way that, well, it's an infinity. But this, yeah, this is definitely something completely apart. And the fact that it does have Lucas's touch on it is unique. I mean, 
you know, most canon things, you know, this this would almost have been a canon kind of thing. But, you know, then we got what we got with Star Wars is Star Wars in general is a, is a very unique beast when it comes to movies and how it was created and how cinema works and all that. And I think by the time you're done with these few episodes of Star Wars Beyond the Film and our look at the Star Wars, I, I think you should be able to appreciate the process that Lucas went through to give us the final product that we've gotten. And thank goodness the final product wasn't this. Amen. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, now again, going issue by issue here, we are taking a look at one through three in this case. We're going to be looking at them in chunks as we go along. We start out with a couple of opening crawls, so to speak. Uh, the premise is laid out on the opening cover, uh, essentially the inside cover. It says, back in 1974, still years before a film called Star Wars would take the world by storm, George Lucas completed the first rough draft screenplay of what was then called The Star Wars. That original screenplay contains all the now familiar elements of Star Wars. An evil empire, a young would-be Jedi, an older Jedi Knight who mentors the boy, a princess in need of rescue, even a father who is more machine than man, but put together in ways far different from what you've seen on screen. For nearly four decades, George Lucas' original vision of the galaxy far, far away existed only as what might have been. And then you got the actual opening crawl that would have led us into the story as we see a Sith starfighter, a pretty cool design, flying towards the planet Utapau. Until the recent Great Rebellion, the Jedi Bindu were the most feared warriors in the universe. For 100,000 years, generations of Jedi perfected their art as the personal bodyguards of the Emperor. They were the chief architects of the invincible Imperial Space Force, which expanded the Empire across the galaxy, from the celestial equator to the farthest reaches of the Great Rift. Now these legendary warriors are all but extinct. One by one, they have been hunted down and destroyed as enemies of the new Empire by a ferocious and sinister rival warrior sect, the Knights of Sith. So we start on the fourth moon of Utapau, where the Starkiller family is. Now this is Cain uh, Starkiller, the father, who is sort of the uh, uh, the more machine-than-man type figure, uh, sort of a cross between designs you see of early uh, Han Solo versus Obi-Wan Kenobi type looks. And then you've got Anakin Starkiller, his son, a teen with uh, samurai-type hair except blonde. And then you've got the much younger Deke, like the Deacon Wendy type thing here, with Deke uh, being sort of more looking like the Anakin Skywalker we meet in The Phantom Menace. So it's that family who's essentially living here while Kane is teaching both children in the arts of the Jedi because he himself is a Jedi Bindu. They spot a starfighter uh, coming down, and Deke is allowed to go with them this time when investigating this because he's continuing well with his studies and he's on his way to becoming a Jedi himself, albeit being relatively young. While Kane goes off to investigate the Starfighter itself, hoping that maybe they can commandeer it instead of having to fix their own ship to get off of this moon, Deke and Anakin watch from afar. But Deke is carrying a rifle that glints in the sunlight, so the new arrival, a Knight of Sith, spots them. Uh, it's this knight, he's basically wearing a cloak, um, he's got red eyes, pale visage, and is wearing a face mask that covers his mouth that uh, has horns 
sticking out of it, much more devilish looking than one would expect. He shows up, appears before them, Tusken Raider style, and busts out his red-bladed lightsaber, or laser sword, and slashes down Deke. Anakin confronts it with his own red lightsaber, until in jumps Kane with his own red lightsaber, and cuts the Knight of Sith in half at the waist. With Deke dead, they have a funeral pyre for him, and then Anakin and Kane commandeer the Sith's ship and take off from the moon of Utapau. We then shift to Alderaan, which in this continuity is the capital of the New Galactic Empire. And we see flybys of Star Destroyers, which in this case is one word, and Star Destroyers are small starfighters, those shaped very much like the Star Destroyers that we know, just much, much smaller, as opposed to being capital ships. We have this announcement that's going out to the people of the New Empire from the Emperor, who is there with the Governor Hodak. H-O-E-D-A-A-C-K, who has just been named the governor and first lord of the Aquilean system and its surrounding territories. The emperor is announcing that Aquilae, or Aquilae, which is the final independent system in the galaxy, the last refuge of the vile Jedi, uh, the great rebellion mentioned in the opening crawl was a great Jedi rebellion, so that's why they've been essentially wiped out, uh, and the last fetches of them are supposedly there, uh, back in the Aquilean system. They are now ready to say, you know what? No more barter, no more suing for peace. We are simply going to take it over. It will be part of the Empire, whether they like it or not. And the people seem to be going for this. We then see Klieg Whitesun, or Whitsun, because there's no E in it, uh, visiting one of his buddies in a bar. That is Bail Antilles. Bail Antilles is a traitor. And that's traitors and trading, not traitor with a T. And he is being taken away by stormtroopers, as are these other transport pilots. So White Sun is an agent for Aquilae at this point, and he's getting information about what's going on. He needs to get word back to Aquilae about what in the heck is going on. We then shift to the governor's quarters, where Governor Hodak is there, along with General Darth Vader. Uh, wearing armor very much like we would expect of Vader, a little more silver to it, and uh, no mask in this case. He is a regular human being, albeit uh, with a cybernetic eye, it looks like. They're also in there with Tribunal member Vantos Cole, who is warning them of the possibility that, yes, Luke Skywalker, a Jedi Bindu general, is on Aquilae. He is sensing that this is the case, and that he is really the one who led the Jedi Rebellion, not Sieg Darklighter, as Darth Vader suggests is the case. We jump then to Aquilae. This is a planet very much like Tatooine, quite frankly. Uh, the leaders are there in the Palace of Light, L-I-T-E. And in this case, it is King Chaos and Queen Bria, who are the heads of the royal family. There's a discussion going on at this point, uh, about whether or not there is going to be a war with the Empire, uh, what should be done in that eventuality, and so forth. And in comes Luke Skywalker, General Skywalker, to interrupt the meeting in which people like uh, Count Sandage, 
uh, Zavos and others are basically saying, yeah, probably not gonna happen, we don't need to go to a war footing, blah, blah, blah. Skywalker, frankly, knows better and wants to strike first, it would appear, at this case. Chaos, however, uh, is sort of taking a balanced point of view. He's wanting to see what's going to happen, it seems, so he's leaning towards Skywalker, and with war not actually broken out yet, they still go ahead with their plans to send their daughter, Leia, off to school, off basically to a university at this point. She heads out uh, to the goodbye of, May the force of others be with you all. We then continue on to the war room on Aquilae, where General Skywalker confers with one of his uh, seconds in command, so to speak, a gentleman by the name of Montross, uh, who is, so far, the only black character we have run into within the story. Everybody else is white, and presumably many of them speaking with English accents. And in barge, Anakin and Kane Starkiller. Uh, Skywalker is reunited, of course, with them, and they have a brief conversation in which Kane basically begs Luke to take Anakin as his Padawan, as his apprentice. Because at this point, Kane is dying. He is, in fact, more machine than man at this point. All that exists is his head and his right arm. Everything else on him is cybernetic at this point. He won't be around very much longer. The Jedi Bindu must survive. Only the Jedi can stop the Empire. And with Luke and Kane's generation finally starting to pass away, it's time for Anakin to be part of the vanguard of a new generation. But before they can consider this any further, in comes Montrust letting them know that something big, a battle station, perhaps, is on its way from the Anchorhead system to Aquilae. Bum, bum, bum. And issue one ends. See, you know, I, I mentioned about this being entertaining for different reasons. And there are so many little nuances and stuff like that that are so similar to scenes that we get in, you know, the main saga. Very much like watching the Family Guy or the Phineas and Ferb version of Star Wars. You're like, oh, oh, there's that scene. Oh, and there's that one. Uh, you know, like you had mentioned when the Sith Lord popped up uh, back on the fourth moon of Utapah. You know, that was very similar to when the Bantha or uh, when Luke's hiding when sees the Banthas and then the snow. Snowspeeder. <laughs> the snowspeeder comes up and slaps him in the face. And that's when the uh, Tuscan Raider jumps up over the side of the crag right there and knocks him down and all that stuff. So there are really cool little things like that. I found that Kane Starkiller was an interesting character because he seems not what I would have expected of Jedi from, from, you know, everything I've known, you know, I mean, there's a problem where, uh, he's teaching Deke and, uh, he's got like this little whip, like they're both sitting crisscross applesauce as my kids like to say it or Indian style as I grew up. Uh, but they're sitting down and they're, they're doing like, it looks like he's got a holocron in his hand, Deke. And then Kane has this little like small whip and he cracks him across his shoulder. And he's like, continue with your problem. Deke, your concentration is worse than your brother's. And, you know, it, it was very interesting, like, you know, you got that sense of he's a single dad, he's trying to keep him alive, they're on the run, but there's all these little things that I still, I automatically wanted to know more, you know, why were the Jedi, you know, on the run for rebelling? What did they rebel against? Was it a setup? Why are there two empires? You know, how did that work out? Does that mean that, you know, this last rebel system is also the empire? This is the last of the original empire? How does that work? There's there's very little detail, and I, I don't blame that on any one I just blame it on the medium. You, you really can't, you know, the comic space on these pages is, is a premium. So they, there's just not 
too much stuff that they can really put in there without putting in like a book novel on the side to set up everything. So, you know, that's hard. But but there are little things that, that get me questioning. You know, you look at General Starkiller and you look at uh, General Starkiller. You look at Kane Starkiller and you look at General Skywalker and their Jedi outfits and the little helmet things that they have. And it reminds me kind of like like the Twilight women, how they always have those ear covers. But I question, you know, how are they able to hear anything? Are those like sensory devices or something? Because that's covering your ear and that's got to just make it hard to hear. Uh, but I like the art style. And, and you, I will point out that uh, in Rebels Fight or Flight, they actually used a very similar model of General Skywalker. And he's one of the characters that have one of the fruits uh, that when uh, Ezra's walking through one of the alleys, it's a real quick, short one and done. But I like the reveal when it came to Kane Starkiller. I mean, at this point, at the beginning of it, you don't realize he's all robotic. They do a really good job of covering it. He's got like this box, very reminiscent to Vader's in the center of his chest. But at this point, it's got a cover, so it looks white, and you don't think anything of it. So when he finally reveals that he's only a head and an arm, that box goes ripping away, and you see that it is exactly like Darth Vader's box in the center of his chest. So I thought that was a cool twist as well. Uh, Deke getting killed right away. You know, I mean, there was parts of me that was like looking at this as a story aspect going, man, that's just like, why do we have that? But then I stop and I think about the fact that this is a rough draft for a movie. So it was like, obviously, you know, when when he was writing this, he was probably hoping that more of this stuff would get fleshed out. So, you know, I, I question, you know, how this stuff changes Anakin's character, you know, because, I mean, he was the one standing there with his brother. His brother died on his watch. Then, you know, he busts out the lightsaber. And I like the fact that the the. Jedi Bendu all have red lightsabers, as do the Sith. Like, it isn't just one color. All the lightsaber blades are the same color at this point, aside from the New Empire's guards who have the white ones, which, again, you know, my curiosity gets piqued on all this stuff. That's that's the one downside about these glimpses into alternate universes and stuff. You have that moment where you kind of want more. And while this isn't quite the best story out there, it definitely works in that regard where I want more. Deke dying, you see Kane Starkiller, he's all upset and all that stuff. He's crying as they leave. You know, I'm right there, I'm feeling the emotions. But when we get to the point where Starkiller and Skywalker come together, I had to take a moment because it seemed like all of a sudden the Starkillers no longer cared about little Deke. Like, there was nothing but happiness. And, and granted, you know, you have a moment where you see a long-lost friend, but there's no mention of it. I mean, aside from General Skywalker makes a comment and stuff, and, and, and Kane starts to get a little... I don't know, bipolar, I guess, uh, you know, he definitely seems all across the board with his emotions. So that kind of struck me. I did like though, that the star destroyers, you know, you mentioned that they were smaller. They kind of had the look of a Jedi, uh, starfighter from episode three or an A wing, but they're two seaters. And I thought that was interesting. Definitely threw me off when I was seeing the, uh, free preview and stuff like that. I was like, wait, are those, are, are those like giants flying those? You know, it took me a second to figure it out. Um, but there's a lot going on. And so, again, you know, the comic, there are times where I have a hard time following it because so many different scenes are jumping from one to another. And, and you know, there's no little bubble saying, you know, this is so and so and this is how he knows anything, which I, I kind of think that as a comic, it may have been served a little more to add some of that filler. I was very curious about, you know, Darth Vader and how he worked out. Um, I like the, the reminiscence of the costume and stuff. I did find it funny that the, uh, the, Supreme Tribunal member Vantros Cole wears pretty much nothing. Like he's got like this over robe like vest thing on, but otherwise it looks like he's naked. It was kind of like, 
Ooh, he he, he kind of reminded me of one of the guys from Dune, uh, Sting and his brother. You know, like the the covered in warts and boils and and overweight and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And when we get to the queen and stuff, I again I get back to that. Like, okay, so they're king and queen. That doesn't make them like the last king and queen in the first empire or anything. I mean, there's all this backstory aspect that didn't quite line up or make sense in my mind that I'm I'm like are there glimmings of things like is there any way I can read this and glean a little more information that I'm not quite catching on I like the the similarities of a lot of characters like Leia has aspects of her that look like Leia aspects of her that look like Padme things like that so I like that to a lot of this things stay true like like her little brother and sister little Biggs and Wendy you know like Again, character names for things that, as a longtime EU fan and stuff, I get a kick out of seeing these names again. And it's cool to now know that, you know, most of these names came from the script and that they were used in that regard. You know, Legends got left on the wayside from canon, but these names came from George Lucas. So it's kind of cool that, you know, now we may actually see those names show back up as names, not the characters, but that was what they were were originally. And I, I find that kind of refreshing in a way. Uh, Montross too is another one of those character names that I, I thought was kind of cool. Um, yeah, but yeah, that moment where Starkiller, you know, shows up and, and he's there with, with general Skywalker. I mean, all he has nothing but beaming smile the entire time. And, you know, there is a thing where it's right here. Uh, Skywalker's talking to him and he goes, he takes after his mother talking about Anakin it's so good to see you. What a sight. But I remember another, and that's when Kane cuts him off. Ha! It's wonderful to be with another Jedi again. So it's like, General Skywalker knows about Deke, but Kane is definitely going out of his way not to even bring it up. So, I mean, you know, I, I guess maybe it's that, that father's remorse where it's just too much, and he's just trying to bury it at all costs, I guess. I don't know. For me, that, that struck me as a moment, but that led to the big reveal, because, you know, he's like, you gotta help me, you gotta train him. He's like, ask anything. You're a brother Jedi. We are one. My friend, we've been through much together. I've been through much since we parted. I've lost much. Your youngest boy, Deke, I... And of course, you know, Kane still doesn't mention anything. He goes, the Empire chased us across the galaxy. There was no refuge. One day they will come here and take my son as your Padawan learner. He would be a Jedi. I trained him from birth. He's reached the fifth stage. He fought in the Cassilian Civil Wars and commanded a Hubble expedition in the Calm System. He's a good boy, Luke, and he's one hell of a fighter. Old friend, you do me too much honor. I was never a match for you. Why don't you finish the training yourself? I'm too old, Luke. I can't go on. You must finish it. What kind of talk is this? That's not the star killer I remember. And he stands up at this point and slams his, his fist slash elbow in through the glass. I'm not the same star killer. And at that point, he takes his right hand and reaches it over to his left arm and rips across the fabric from his left arm across his chest, rips it back. And that chest plate comes flying away. And he goes, there's nothing left of me, but my head and my right arm. And the look on his face. I loved it. I love that scene. That was a great scene. And then the next scene, you see the remorse and everything, you know, everything you would expect from Deke being gone. And he says, Luke, I'm dying. And then, of course, Anakin puts his hand, Dad, no. And Luke's like, I'm sorry. You know, I, I just, I found that that was a really powerful moment. And I really liked the reveal with the the whole I'm half machine. I didn't see that coming. And, you know, that was the classic Darth Vader, you know, the hands all cut off and that stuff, you know, right after the reveal of I'm your dad kind of thing. Like, I, I just, I got a kick out of all that. You know, I'm I'm with you on a lot of that. It's It's very cool to see the references here, of course. Uh, having gone through and read the original script, you know, the references are in there. 
Uh, you could make the argument, I think, that there's a, probably a lot of fans out there who look at something like this and think, oh, well, look, they're just putting in names to have names for stuff, and they're purposely referencing it, kind of like Lucas sometimes reuses names. How lame. They shouldn't force it like that. But it's not forced. I mean, this is stuff that was in the original script. Uh, even Montross, that name that we know, of course, from the backstory of Django Fett, and that mm -hmm. is in that original script. Uh, what's not there, though, is those explanations. You talked about how it seems like it zips along at some points and jumps from place to place, and there's not really an explanation of what's going on. You have to kind of pick it up as you go. Uh, that's the way the original script was. The dialogue oh. that's here, the descriptions that are here, it's very similar to the original script. There are very few alterations made overall. It seems like they made it a point to stick as absolutely close to the original script right down to the dialogue as they possibly could. So the end result is the recognition that this original script was somewhat less uh, relatable, I guess, than what we finally got, right? The original version of the script was very Flash Gordon-esque and lots and lots of side references to things, the Great Rebellion, the Cassilian Civil War, uh, the ship is a Banta IV, um, uh, what is, is without, is the Corbett Dictum, which is apparently part of Jedi training and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's all kinds of references thrown in there that tend to make things less relatable, even if it's meant to make it feel like a real universe. And it's kind of hard to compare that to the original Star Wars film because, of course, you know, we've lived with it for so long that a lot of those side references, like the Kessel Run, we kind of take for granted what they are. But for someone seeing it new in 1977, surely a lot of those references felt like they were out of left field and you're wondering what the heck they're talking about. But it seems like those terms, in most cases, got toned down. They weren't quite as technical sounding. They weren't quite as over the top in some cases as what we get here. And it didn't seem like they were being used as often. The Star Wars that we got was modern mythology. It was archetypes put into a story to tell the hero's journey that happened to take place in a galaxy far, far away. And those other references and terms tended to be used to flesh that out to a degree. Here, it seems like it's just sci-fi babblespeak, because you don't get the hero's journey here. It has to be carried by the pure sci-fi elements of this series, or of this script. And because of that, it seems like all these little additions are in there specifically to make it feel more sci-fi, more technobabbly as it goes along. Um, the references don't feel as organic to the way that the story is written, especially given how disjointed the story at times feels. Um, this, I remember when I was reading the original draft scripts, the original draft scripts really feel like there's no way they could have been one movie. I mean, Lucas talks about how he had this saga in mind, or at least part of a saga in mind, and he took one chunk of it to make it into that first film. At this point in the writing, it certainly feels as though he hadn't quite figured out how much time he would have if he was making a feature film, because I can't imagine the story that we got in these eight issues, or that original script, being able to fit within the runtime of one regular film. We're talking mm -hmm. like a Titanic-length film in order to make this work. Transformers 4? To a degree, yeah. And probably with just as much success as Transformers 4 in that <laughs> sense. Um uh, but I like the references. I like the fact that we do see these uh, cool visual references to things. I think Mayhew did an amazing job capturing it uh, artistically. Mm -hmm. I would say that that is the thing that shines about this series is the artistic style of things. Yeah. Um, but when we look at things like 
in terms of Lucas's writing style and such, I must say, I'd have to go back to the original script and look and see, but I really hope that the original script didn't have the yippee in it. Because when we get <laughs> to only the third page of the story, it's, all right, son, get your gear, and Deke runs up, yippee! I'm thinking, oh my god, Kane, grab your whip again, please. <laughs> Well, you know, another thing, this is a great example for movie-only fans. You know, I mean, EU fans, now that Legends is Legends, and things that we used to know are now open, you know, like what was Tarkin's name and things like that. Uh, you know, this this is your glimpse of what we're going through with the new saga. I mean, things that you know but are presented in a new way and things that you thought you knew are now open and not to be taken for granted or even of happening or existing. So... You know, if you're ever into like kind of getting into that other side of things, you know, this is a great example as to what for me exactly going forward is going to be like, because it's like, OK, wait, that guy's not that character and that that didn't happen. OK, so I, I, I love that new twist. I mean, that's the one thing about multiverses and about parallel universes and stuff that I've always enjoyed, you know, the alternate twist on things, you know, Star Trek, too. I enjoyed it because that that's I can dig those kind of things. I like things that are similar yet different. And. This is very interesting in that regard. I mean, that was the one thing when I got done reading it, it was it was really hard to say whether it was good or bad. I just was like, it was interesting. And, you know, I mean, in, in the knowledge sake, I found that enjoyable. Before we move on to issue two, may I state my agreement with the fact that it certainly seems as though they stopped caring about Deke dying. Up, oh, kid's dead. Ah, well, find yourself a woman. You can make more. There's more where that came from. Yeah. Heartless, heartless Starkiller. That moves us on to issue number two. We start in the war room where they're talking about their war plans as Kane is on their way out of there. Now, they're going to need the okay from the king in order to supposedly start the war computers, whatever that happens to be. So Anakin and Luke go visit the king and queen. Uh, they have a nice dinner together with a very oversized turkey-looking thing. Um, and it turns out that, no... Uh, there's a separation of war powers on this planet, and even though it's a monarchy at this point, and they're just going to have to wait, it would seem. Uh, he needs to meet with the assembly, get their okay, um, tell them they're not going to approve this treaty of alliance with the Empire, and then they'd be able to activate it. And Luke thinks that that's going to be too late. It'll turn out that that is certainly correct. This huge space station, though, that's on its way, this thing that they're calling an asteroid initially, uh, has vanished from their scopes. They know that something is on its way, or at least they're assuming that it is. So Anakin and Luke head right back to the war room, where Anakin, in a really kind of hard-to-follow set of panels, frankly, it took me a few times to go back and look at and figure out what the heck is going on, Anakin decides apparently to take that moment to hit on and try to kiss and or molest and or sexually assault whatever he's doing, because it's only one panel, a female in the war room, and is finally drawn back to attention by Luke, uh, who tests his reflexes by pulling a lightsaber on him, to which Anakin pulls his and blocks it. You know, you're well-trained, but remember, a Jedi must be single-minded, etc., etc., so stop chasing tail, you little punk. <laughs> yeah, that they was... They find that, that White Sun is back. Uh, he's injured, but he's back. And he brings word that the Imperial Star Force is on its way with this giant space fortress, which is apparently the thing that they have been noticing. Recognizing that they'll attack prior to any actual appearance of the space station on their screens, Luke comes up with a plan. He tells Anakin 
to pick up a land speeder and head off to Chathos, which is apparently on the same planet, must be a city, and go pick up only Princess Leia. So screw her handmaiden that's with her. Just go pick up Princess Leia. The king uh, is going to give them the war code to start the war computers, but for now, they have to sit tight and try to basically stay alive. We immediately cut to the end of Anakin's journey as Anakin is there with the princess. Uh, she is refusing to go without her bags, a la Spaceballs, it seems, until Anakin finally punches her out, knocks her out, shoves her in the land speeder, and takes off, uh, leaving her handmaiden behind. Alana, that is, in this case. Another uh, name that we will see reused within the Legends continuity in that case. Yeah. Turns out that as the king is on his way back, though, as uh, king is headed out, king is turning around, Turns out that realizing that the attack is going to come sooner than necessarily expected, uh, Luke is trying to get in touch with the king, and the king is actually out on a journey to go meet, presumably either with or on his way back from meeting with the assembly. Uh, he needs to get back to Calibus immediately because they're afraid of an attack. And sure enough, as witnessed by a couple of bumbling farmers in what looks like a Trade Federation tank, which isn't. It's essentially the same thing without turrets and such on it as just a regular vehicle. You know, they're out in the open when, boom, a blast from space comes down and destroys the, the group of vehicles carrying the king, uh, as spotted by that wayward farmer. Looks like we're going to have ourselves a war, Dad. Time to get, that's G-I-T, our blasters and sound the alarm. With the Empire now attacking, uh, we go to the spaceport in the city of Gordon, where the Aquilean Devil Squadron takes off. Now, these are starfighters that look uh, somewhat similar to a, uh, a an a ARC-170 yeah. with, its, uh, with its wings closed. Though, interestingly, it has two pods for a pilot and presumably a gunner, one in the normal spot and one that's on one of the wings, which is a little bit odd. And they take off for the space station. We get this big... Battle in space, where one of the pilots is Chewie, another pilot is Mace, of course, and the battle really isn't going all that well. During the battle, we jump inside the space station to finally introduce the two droids. R2-D2, spelled differently with T-W-O instead of T-O-O in that case, and C-3PO, all as one word, looking much more like his Metropolis-inspired version of himself, although... R2-D2, in this case, has rollers, not claw arms at this point. He's got a couple of claws coming out of his dome, very much like Chopper in Rebels at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. And as things go from bad to worse in some cases, in some specific parts of the space station, enough to scare the two droids, they're looking for a way to get the heck out of there. Uh, in command, of course, are Hodak and Darth Vader. Still no Sith just yet. Back at the war room, we find out that uh, Anakin and Leia are long overdue, so Luke isn't sure what's going to happen with them. They know that the king has been killed, and their communications are being jammed. Things aren't going well for Aqualay. Up in space, we see an escape pod launch. Uh, basically, C-3PO wanted to get the heck off the space station before they could be destroyed. R2-D2 didn't want to. A small explosion scares R2-D2, and he rushes into the escape pod, and then they launch. And from here on, R2-D2 is still going to assume that it was C-3PO's idea, and that he really didn't want to leave, despite the fact that he was the one that freaked out at the explosion, and jumped right in. 
Aquilae has essentially fallen, finally. Uh, the leaders of the government with the king in absence, uh, with the queen concurring, arrive. This is uh, Senator Sandage, right? Like Count Sandage slash Senator Sandage, presumably is the same character. They call him two different things within the story here. Uh, arrive basically saying, war's over. We've signed a treaty. Uh, it's done. Aquilae has given up. And even as two starfighters are on their way to what certainly sounds like the equivalent of the Death Star's trench, in this case, a certain power relay area, they're ordered to back off. And as soon as they turn away, they are blasted out of the sky. We end the issue with Luke yelling at Sandage, Is this the peace the Empire promised? Get out of my sight! Make no mistake, even if it's treason, this war is just beginning. And issue two comes to an end. Man, so many little things in this one. Um... You know, one of the first things that jumps up to me, of course, you know, is may the force of others. You know, they use that phrase all the time. So it's not may the force be with you. It's may the force of others be with you. May the force of others go with you. May you be protected by the force of others. He's with the force of others now. And that whole of others really starts to throw me off for a while. Like, I just, I, I mean, I get it. It's a different concept. But, yeah, I have a hard time with that. The Anakin having an eye for the ladies. Like, okay, that one... Is that that was obviously an angle they were they were planning to explore more, you know? Like, is, is this part of like his frustration and stuff? Yeah, you mentioned it. Like, there definitely seemed like a a rapo angle there. Like, he's in the process of trying to kiss her, and even she's like, uh, like, and then when he gets called, he's like, uh oh, like, yeah, that was weird, and it came so out of you know left field that I I kept thinking like, okay, obviously from a from a, I'm making a movie. This is my screenplay standpoint. This is the very loose. You know, Lucas is writing things and hoping maybe someone else will, or he'll have another idea later to kind of flesh that out and make that character really cool. There, with Anakin, there was a lot of stuff like that, that the comic just didn't give his character enough time to flesh it out. So it feels odd like this. You know, they're walking into a war room in the middle of this huge event. And he decides to go off in the corner and start forcing himself on a woman. Really weird and does not play well with the character. But at the same time, I think about the fact that he literally watched his brother die. He's now off and left his dad, who he knows is dying, and he's in the middle of this war. Like, you know, yeah, this guy's emotionally conflicted and probably a little tweaked up in the mind. So, you know, I kind of get that. You know, that works a little bit. I like it. And again, I, I got to agree with you again about the art. The art is just glorious through this. I really dig the style. Uh, the Alana, you know, you, you mentioned the Alana. I love that too. I got excited about that. Uh, and then you see Anna can throw the punch again. I, I would question you: know, Are these signs of his frustration coming through, or is just the character just a womanizing, woman-beating douchebag? I mean, I, I have a hard time with that. Another one that I found was interesting was the title captain. Okay, Anakin gets selected to be the Padawan, which is a title, and suddenly he's now Captain Starkiller, all the way through it. And and White Sun is Captain White Sun. Well, as Skywalker's general Skywalker, I have to wonder, like, you know, is Captain just a title they're throwing around loosely or what? Uh, another one was the king. The king says, you know, he's going to send the war code. But I, I, I don't know. It's like, did he send it off before he died or did it die with him? Did that never happen? So that was the interesting twist. And, you know, when, when the people show up and they're like, you know, we've got the treaty and stuff, I'm like, okay, are these guys part of this planet or did these guys come from Alderaan Senate? I mean... 
I had a hard time there because it seemed like there was two senates at play, and I wasn't sure if that was that whole aspect of the, the two empires going on or if the two-empire plot was dropped right at the beginning and that there was no second empire, that the first empire folded and all you have left are holdouts that are now just considered rebels. Like, that was never explained, so that part didn't quite sit with me either. I was kind of still scratching my head trying to figure that out. Uh, but you'd mentioned that the seating on the uh, Devil Squadron ships and stuff and the second one being out on the wing – and I want to point out, you know, that's very similar to the uh, the Lardy, the Republic gunships, uh, wing gunners. They sit very similar to that. Uh, another thing you pointed out was uh, R2 having the arms like Chopper. When you go back over this and look at this, Chopper is this R2. They literally took that R2 and then just gave him a slight modification to the outer skin. It's like taking R2-D2 from the Clone Wars and then putting him in Rebels, which they've done, and looking at the differences in the outer part of the body. That is what they've done here. This R2 is the chopper you see in Rebels. Like, even the little top thing on the top, the way the arms are out, everything about him is chopper. So I thought that was kind of cool. You know, I mean, again, there's these aspects of you seeing in reverse, <laughs> you know, this is where everything spawned from. Not that they're taking it from the EU or they're taking it from Rebels and throwing it in there. I think that is just brilliant. Uh, and adding to the brilliance here are the droids themselves. You know, the fact that R2 can talk in one of the later uh, issues, they even mention it. Uh, you know, I think when Anakin comes across him, he thinks that he can't talk at first until they run across 3PO, and then he starts talking. He's, oh, you can talk. But I love the banter back and forth between these two. And in fact, you'll notice that some of the banter R2 says is actually banter that 3PO says all the way through the film to R2. So I like the fact that the conversation from the films is there in a different form. Uh, you had mentioned the fact that, you know, it was 3PO that was trying to get him out of there, but in the end it was R2 that, that finally did it. And there were some great moments of banter there. You know, they're, they're, it's kind of reminds me of, uh, in the Tantive 4 when they're running through, you know, you go, we have hull breach in sector 2A17, evacuate. This is madness. I'm still not accustomed to space travel. We're going to be destroyed. And then R2 comes on. The external bombardment appears to be concentrated in this area. The structure was exceeded normal stress continent by point four although there is no immediate danger boom and they both go flying off their off the ground and these stacked up crates fall over and one lands halfway on 3po and he's like no immediate danger you're faulty and then of course you know they continue on the battles going on and more ships are blowing up and it's causing things to fall and stuff and and this again is 3po you overweight glob of grease quit following me get away get away you're a mindless useless philosopher come on let's get back to work the system is all right and then there's a body hanging up above him, and R2 looks up. What the? And they look, and they see that he's all burnt, and they both scream, Ah! And I thought that was funny, too, because, you know, it's a little emotion from him, which, you know, you don't get much emotion. You get a little bit, oh, sir, we'll be doomed, you know, things like that. But seeing them scream like that, I thought that was kind of a funny little moment. And then, of course, you know, you've got other scenes that happen before we get back to him, and you see one of the uh, the fighters come flying down, and they take out what looks like, shield generators or something on the outside of the death star thing and it explodes which is what prompts r2 which you know as that's exploding you go back inside to what they're talking and three people are i'm leaving those explosions are coming from the reactor my first order is preservation i'm going to eject before the whole thing goes up and r2 goes our work we can't leave it's desertion these life parts aren't for us it's not right and then all of a sudden you have the boom and flames come flying up the shaft between him and R2. It's the end. Eject, eject. And he goes into the thing and 3 is scrawling behind him. Wait for me. And then they launch out. And then, of course, you still have one more great, brilliant scene 
And I think that's actually in the next issue. Yeah. Where uh, 3PO mentions how small it looks or something like that. It's, it's in the next one. But I loved all those little references that I was recognizing from A New Hope. You know, and, and the droids characters were definitely something that I really dug. The, the names of the Devil Squad, you know, Chewie and Mace and all that. And, and all of them, I believe, in the end finally end up dying. So that was kind of kind of sad, too, that Chewie wasn't a character that stayed around. Uh, you know, and then as we move forward, the how Han Solo looks like Zeb and stuff like that as we get to it in the next one. Th- th- there was a lot of really cool things. I liked the nuances, the the subtle throwbacks or throw forwards or however it works when you're dealing with something that led to everything else. And then we get this later and it's like, well, it throws back to the everything else. It's like, well, no, it actually goes all the way to the beginning. And I like that. I think that's very cool. It reminds me of when I first got into Star Wars and I grabbed an essential chronology. You know, I was I was going through that and kind of reading the stories and seeing where they fit and deciding where I wanted to go first. And then when I got in those books, it was like I had an idea of things, but I didn't know how they were going to fit together. And it was exciting. And that that was what out of this that I was really getting was that, that sense of excitement of the understanding. The overall story is a little confusing, but I'm not getting my excitement out of the story. I'm getting my excitement out of the process that Lucas went through and the, and the evolution of the story overall and seeing this throwback to that time that came before. That is very interesting. I mean, I know for you, Nathan, you've done this with, with your Star Wars timeline and stuff. So, you know, that I'm sure when you were doing that, you were getting that same sense of wonder that I'm getting right now. Of, oh, oh, okay. And stuff like that. And plus you've got all that added info from all that stuff. So I'm sure for you reading through this was a very different experience than I got. Yeah, it was still kind of odd, but I at least sort of knew what to expect. It was more sort of a, how are they going to visualize this? So again, in that sense, it doesn't disappoint because we've got Mayhew's artwork to carry this along. I I really would like to go back and see what he used as the photo references, because this reminds me very much of Star Wars Union, in the sense that you can actually recognize in some cases, wow, I really think he was using a particular actor or actress to portray this character, but I can't quite figure out, you know, who it actually was, uh, yeah. especially when it comes to uh, Anakin and Leia. There's just points where I almost think I can put my finger on who it is they're using and then not exactly quite. So um, very well done as far as capturing it art-wise, despite the fact that so many things are so odd. Uh, and they do talk about the evolution of the art concepts in that number zero issue. So if you're into the art side of this, which I think is the best part of it, as you already know as an audience, uh, definitely check that out because it makes for a nice little uh, reference point to this thing. I will agree, um, Anakin's characterization is odd here. Aside from the fact that apparently he doesn't care the fact that his brother's dead back in the first issue, you know, hey, more where he came from, apparently. Although, maybe not, because his dad's apparently machine down in those regions. He only has Ooh. his hand or his arm and his head. Um, Anakin seems odd in that he seems like he is the... Uh, sort of a womanizer, or at least to an extent, I mean, we really don't get any sense of what exactly was happening with that woman. Uh, all we get is the fact that there's the one panel, she's leaning back away from him like, uh, and he's leaning in. It took me a few looks to see that he's trying to kiss her in the shot. It's just like he looks over and all of a sudden he's over there with this woman. Were they talking? No, apparently it looks like he was trying to kiss her. What the hell? And then you get the next, uh-oh, and he returns back. And we don't really see much more of that, but that's an odd characterization for him. Um, and now we've got him decking Leia and just throwing her into the vehicle or carrying <laughs> her into the vehicle and getting the heck out of there. So the impatience is there, but he, he definitely doesn't feel like 
the Anakin or even the Luke at this age that we know within the classic trilogy or the prequel trilogy. He's very much his own character, kind of like Luke. I mean, Luke Skywalker in this has overtones of Obi-Wan, but is very much himself. Yet not the archetypes that we expect. Instead, something a lot more just sort of straight out of general sci-fi Flash Gordon-ish stuff where, hey, we don't need an archetype for each one because we're not making a modern myth. We're just making a sci-fi film. Um, in relation to the Two Empires thing, that is something that actually struck me initially, that I think it was a very good thing that Lucas wound up changing the the model of this into something more like the Roman Empire, where you have an empire that originally was a republic and wound mm -hmm. up with essentially corruption and circumstances leading to the people handing over their power, essentially, to one individual. Whether we're talking about uh, the, the death of Julius Caesar and the triumvirate, the second triumvirate coming in with Mark Antony and Lepidus and uh, Octavian and Octavian becoming Augustus Caesar and all that, or the Clone Wars eventually turning the Republic into the Empire as people turn towards Palpatine for guidance. I think that both historically and from a storytelling standpoint is more compelling to have the idea of the people having a true voice mm -hmm. and then having it taken away to become essentially a dictatorship. That is the kind of thing where you feel like, yes, there is an ideal worth fighting for if you're going for American or Western audiences. Here, the idea that there was an original empire, now there's this new empire, and the good guys are from a place that's effectively a monarchy, there's not really this sense of connection, I don't think, between a Western audience and this situation. Um, an empire becoming an empire, oh well, the people didn't have a voice in the first place. It doesn't feel like it's a rebellion standing up against the might of an empire, standing up against tyranny. It feels more like, well, hey, here's these people fighting to just save their planet. Nothing in the description of Aqualai within this series makes you feel as though Aqualai is any more necessarily worth fighting for than anywhere else. Um, it's just yet another monarchy out there. Yes, it's the last of the independent places. It's the last place the Jedi can be safe. But what of it? We know very little about the Jedi here. What was up with that Jedi rebellion? Uh, at this point, we have very little reason to care about it. That's why it was so good when Lucas changed things as we got to the actual produced version of A New Hope, where it stops being about the ideology behind everything. That's sort of the undercurrent and becomes a very personal story for Luke. Um, that's not what we've got here just yet. We don't really have that type of tale. Um, one thing that I do find particularly interesting, though, in the way that things pan out as we're getting into issue number two, though, is the droids. Uh, the droids are still kind of meh in this case. Um, I think it's good that R2-D2 now speaks in, speaks in beeps instead of this, because the banter is just kind of yet another pair of characters that so far doesn't really serve a whole lot. They will later in this story, uh, but the fact that they were not rebel droids that were sent on some kind of secret mission to save the day, they just kind of fell into this whole thing because they were Imperial droids that barely made it out of there, um, that I find somewhat compelling. The idea that essentially, mm -hmm. if they had really played it up like this, the fact that they were Imperial droids who got out of there, there could have been a lot of, well, are they spies? What could they want? We can't take them with us type of stuff. They would have added a very different layer to those characters. It doesn't, but the potential for that is there, uh, which is an yeah. interesting concept. 
getting back to issue one and they talk about the Jedi Bendu being these fierce warriors and everything. And then, you know, there's a rebellion. It's like, okay, so then the Jedi to the galaxy highs became the villains, which makes them a vicious enemy, which this means that the Sith are that much more badass. I mean, you know, there's that whole aspect that like, I- I'm curious how that went down. And-, and you're right with the droids. Like there was so much potential there. Uh, when you'd mentioned the characters having likenesses and stuff and that the artists may have captured them, I know Anakin reminds me, and I'm, I'm terrible with with names, uh, it's Alan Alan T, like I don't know his last name, but he played Wash in uh, Firefly. You, I, I, I look at Anakin's character and I see Wash, uh, you know, so, so I see that. And then White Sun reminds me of, and again, I'm terrible with last names, it's Johnny. And he uh, he was married to Angelina Jolie. He was uh, he plays Sherlock with uh, Lucy Liu in the new show. But he reminds me of that guy. And there's there's a lot of that where like I'm like okay I could see resemblances to people. And I, I'm with you on that. It'd be kind of cool to to hear about you know some of these authors you know where they get their inspiration and stuff like that. Because yeah, there are a lot of these characters in this that look like they're based off of someone. It doesn't look like it's just like. Well, this is it, like like Zane Carrick, you know, Zane Carrick wasn't based off of anyone. And therefore, as you're watching it, like he's always kind of slightly shifting and morphing a little bit in each comic. And this one, it's like it's all drawn pretty much the same. Like and I love that consistency of it. The artist and the art style for this eight run series is great. You know, it makes me stop. You know, I'm a Marvel fan and I, I go from one comic series to another in Marvel. And sometimes I'll follow like one long run and you have a new artist that comes in and stuff like what with KOTOR and. Sometimes that throws it off and having a project that's all done by one artist, I think, you know, for Star Wars going forward in, you know, the new canon and stuff, I think that that would be a, a brilliant way for them to go. Stick with one artist so you have less of that characters morphing and stuff like that because I love the art in this. I love everything about how it's drawn and how it's presented. It's, it's got a gritty kind of feel to it still, even though it's beautiful. That moves us into our final issue for this episode which is issue number three. Uh, we pick up uh, seeing C-3PO and R2-D2 falling in the escape pod toward Aqualai with the whole, you know, that's funny, the damage doesn't look as bad from out here line that, of course, we know from the final film. We see a brief glimpse inside the Space Fortress's main hangar where we get a rousing speech of, you know, let the invasion begin stuff from Darth Vader, who at this point uh, not only has the armor from the neck down, that looks like the Vader that we know, but has a helmet that is essentially Vader's helmet minus the faceplate. Uh, you know, the helmet t- uh, part that whenever he takes it off eventually, or when Luke takes it off of him in Return of the Jedi, he has to take off the helmet part before he takes the face mask and skull plate type thing off. Uh, it looks basically like that. And we see Luke uh, sitting there worried with Montross because there's been no sign of Starkiller or the princess yet at this point. We finally pick up the main action on the surface at the edge of the Junland in the Dune Sea, where C-3PO and R2-D2 are bickering, as we know that they tend to do within the regular continuity. Um, and C-3PO finally just tosses R2-D2 way across the sand, uh, and then they part ways. An interesting violent streak there for C-3PO, though I can't imagine him actually being that strong. That's kind of an oddity for C-3PO there. R2-D2, for his part, comes across a vehicle, but it's not a sand crawler in this case. It's the vehicle bearing Leia, who is now conscious, and Anakin. And while R2-D2 doesn't speak at this point just yet, they think he must have been jettisoned from a vehicle or something like that, they decide to take the droid with them. 
C-3PO then spots a vehicle. Hey, could it be a transport? And that's the exact same vehicle again. So the them being separated was effectively pointless. Uh, at least there was a little bit more point to it with A New Hope. Um, but what we get here is Leia and Anakin and R2-D2 picking him up at R2-D2's urging. This is what finally gets R2-D2 to actually speak up, uh, to find his tongue, so to speak. And then the four of them uh, take off. So they finally get to the point where they stop. Leia and Anakin hop out, and they've got a secret entrance covered by a boulder, basically, uh, into the capital. And they open up the secret entrance, they walk down this big tunnel, leaving the droids behind back in the speeder, it would seem. And they are met by Luke. Luke finally tells them that King Chaos is dead, he was killed in an enemy attack. Her mother and brothers, Bria, Biggs, and Wendy, they're all still okay. They're in the main chamber. And she runs off to the main chamber. We then jump to slightly later in the main chamber, the throne room, where Leia is essentially now the queen because Queen Bria was queen by marriage. And now that King Chaos is dead, the authority actually falls uh, to Leia at this point. Now, the idea here is that they need to get Leia out of there, essentially. If they can get Leia to Ofuchi, then they can get the, the men and the ships that they need to come back, take down the corrupt Senate there on Aquilae, the ones that have sided with the Empire, and put Leia officially back on the throne. Uh, her mother will stay behind. Leia must go with them. Rather than taking uh, Montross, who is right there with them on this journey, uh, Luke has Montross uh, get in touch with White Sun to have him join them, and to get in touch with Han Solo at the Gordon spaceport, because they're going to need to get off of the planet. They're going to need to basically uh, travel undercover, uh, hiding their wealth and royal training with Luke in full command, which is something that Leia has actually agreed to, though Luke didn't think she would at first. Speaking of the spaceport of Gordon. We jump there and see Hodak again speaking with Darth Vader about uh, what is underway at this point, uh, how Hodak is working with them, you know, a man uh, who wants power can always be trusted to basically betray those who are in power, and the journey for the heroes is beginning around the same time. You have White Sun and Luke and the two young boys, Leia's younger brothers, Biggs and Wendy, all in one speeder, a covered top speeder, those kind of Naboo in design. And then you have a much more utilitarian looking speeder that has Anakin and Leia and the two droids in it uh, as they are traveling. They don't get very far, though, where they are met by Hodak and some soldiers, uh, basically uh, ordering their arrest because the Empire has assured the safety of the royal family and Luke doesn't buy it and he doesn't answer to the Empire anyway. Luke draws his lightsaber, cuts Hodak in half. Apparently the Jedi are really big on this whole let's cut them in half at the waist. Hopefully none fall down a reactor shaft and come back as spider droids of themselves. And our heroes hop in their speeders and take off. Uh, but rather than heading straight for the spaceport and to safety, they stop so they can watch the hidden fortress, the hidden underground fortress, um, self-destruct. It's a huge explosion and it kind of collapses in on itself, because uh, it was an underground fortress, um, and the hope is that this will cause the Empire not to be able to find anything useful 
but they know that the Empire will still be looking for them. Speaking of which, they see an Imperial force coming by. You've got Star Destroyers, little two-man starfighters flying by. You've got some tanks. Uh, they're sort of discs uh, on the bottom, discs on the top, uh, similar to kinds that we've seen in the actual continuity as they took those concept art concepts and changed them into something else. And what looked like a bunch of stormtroopers on staps, though later they will call them jet stickers, uh, basically stormtroopers on stap-looking things with big blaster lances on them. And then these dune birds, uh, these big uh, ostrich-looking things with sharp teeth uh, that stormtroopers are riding. They have these little uh, helmet-slash-harnesses on their head uh, to allow the stormtroopers to ride them. I couldn't think anything but harness the power, dino riders, when I saw it. Um, <laughs> well, I was just thinking, well, we know they're tasty because we saw them on the uh, queen's table. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, and we see the stormtroopers that are riding on their backs uh, carry not only blasters, but lightsabers, those white lightsabers. And this particular group has little shoulder, I think it's called a pauldron, but it's purple. So apparently this is not the group they run into later with the uh, orange pauldrons. It looked more like a sand trooper that we saw in A New Hope. But the Imperial troops are certainly charging on through the area, and they have to be careful not to get caught. We jump then uh, to a command room for Darth Vader, where he is met by the arrival, finally, of a Knight of Sith, Prince Valorum. A Knight of Sith, a man in black body armor across his entire body, uh, who has a face mask that, again, kind of like that cloaked Sith at the beginning, has uh, a thing that covers basically his nose down to his chin and such, but not any type of helmet over his head or cloak over his head in this case, and no horns sticking out of it. It's a little more reminiscent of Vader's mask, or actually, honestly, it's a little more reminiscent of Sub-Zero and Scorpion I, for yes, more combat. That was just what I was going to say, and his eyes aren't red. This is true. His eyes are not red in this case. We then jump to our heroes as they are looking for fuel. And they stop at a little station, thinking that, you know, they can speak to the people who are in charge there, the people who run the place to possibly get some fuel cells, only to find that the people there must have resisted the Empire because they have all been killed and strung up. So, uh, White Sun finds a power cell, a fuel rod, that is, hands it off. Excuse me, had to burp. Hands it off to Anakin. But before they can do anything, they step outside and, whoop, there's a bunch of Imperial Stormtroopers, right? The orange pauldron ones, which presumably are not part of that group from before, but essentially armed the same way with those white lightsabers and blasters actually hanging on their belts. Uh, Luke tries to pass it off as, hey, they were just looking for power. It's okay. Um, they've been relocated to Banth Gorta Station by Imperial order. You know, if they don't have power, they'll be forced to stay there and become the Stormtroopers' responsibilities. To which the stormtroopers respond that, yeah, they don't need the responsibility, they're just going to kill them. As one stormtrooper says, yeah, my boys need some practice killing Aqualayans. Anakin hands off the fuel rod to Leia for safekeeping, draws his lightsaber, and stabs through two stormtroopers at the same time. In the kind of impalement that, of course, if this was in the Clone Wars cartoon series, would not have aired on Cartoon Network and only appeared on home video. Uh, in the battle that follows, it is relatively brief as the Staps come in and join the fray, but basically they're able uh, to cause the Imperials to sort of kill each other and take off to safety. Uh, again, in this case now, we have Anakin and Luke and Wendy and Biggs inside the one with sort of the bubble on top, the one I said looks like it's somewhat of Naboo design, and 
Now the droids and White Sun with Leia, basically White Sun and Luke swap positions in the more utilitarian speeder as they head away and uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 bantering as R2-D2 says C-3PO? Haha, <laughs> C-3PO, but this is C, comma, 3PO? I knew we'd be all right. 3PO, you listening? Well, what do you know? Fainted. Because apparently in this universe, droids can faint as issue three ends. <laughs> yeah, that was a little, a little weird right there with the whole fainting thing. You know, I, I have to say, though, you know, how stupid was it on Leia and Anakin's part, though, for not driving all those ships into the base? Although I will point out Vader apparently knew about that entrance, but it was kind of like, wait, why are you guys all staging there when you had this really big, long hallway? I mean, so big, it looked like it was added post Blu-ray edition on Jabba's Palace big. I mean, I just it was one of those things like, OK, that wasn't very bright. And then, you know. They when they blew up the base and all the imps were coming, I would have waited for the imps to be getting into the base and then blew that sucker up. I wouldn't have blown it up beforehand. Uh, another question I had though was Prince Valorum. Like the Sith are, are something that there is not much to them in this. There, I mean, aside from that first opening thing about you know Knights of the Sith helping the New Empire and then seeing one get cut down, and now this guy, there is really nothing to tell you anything about them. I mean, you know, they're just a group that showed up. I mean, were they once a Jedi that turned? There's nothing, nothing there whatsoever. So I'm very curious about them. I thought it was interesting that it was a prince, a prince that was the uh, Sith Lord there. I, I don't know if there's any significance to that or not, but I just I thought it was kind of a cool little twist that it was a prince and not just a regular guy. Uh, and, and then, you know, we'd mentioned before with last issue about how the likenesses of these characters are so great. Darth Vader is one that they did such a good job with that character that I would even love to see like what they did with with General Skywalker in Rebels, where they put uh, a model of him just randomly walking around. I would love to see a model of this Darth Vader, his head like they just did a really good job of it. I mean. I could see a, a few different type of characters having that head and it working. It's really cool. Like they had to have been based off of somebody. You're absolutely right in that regard. It's just it's way too the same face every single time. Like there's just there's just an artist that is really good and he's got somebody he's copying because it's just perfect, man. Every single time that Darth Vader looks cool. Like even like the back of his head where he's got like the little crack lines going down in his hair and stuff. Like and he's got the one red eye. Like I just I love the look of the character. Yeah, I like the fact that this issue does finally introduce us to a Knight of Sith, uh, aside from just that one that was taken out fairly easily early on. Uh, now we get Valorum. Valorum will be one of the more interesting characters as we go along. It's interesting to see him in a scene with General Darth Vader, of course, because we know them as a single character. Uh, and, of course, the way Mayhew decided to design their looks, uh, we know them visually combined into one character with elements that come from both giving us the Darth Vader, of course, that we know. Uh, and now at least they finally got the mission really going here. It's kind of an oddity in that we get a big space battle at the beginning. And now we have the mission that's going to try to get them off the planet. But it's going to seem like it's going to take a while. The The big action set pieces in space are done for a little bit as we get to this. Well, let's just get her to Opuchi so we can get some people to come back and fight again. Just not quite as compelling as the way that it wound up working with trying to rescue the princess and and continue the message about stopping the Death Star and everything that we get in the actual filmed version of what eventually became A New Hope in this case. Uh, but, you know, moving forward, nice. Uh, it's nice to see, finally, the stormtroopers with the lightsabers, which is one of the more iconic uh, Macquarie 
visuals that we tend to think of when we think of early drafts of Star Wars, because if we're thinking visuals, we almost always go to McCory as far as the inspiration for all of that. But an issue, this is where the pacing really felt like it was starting to slow down. All of this, Oh yeah. how long is it going to take them to get off of Aquilae? Oh, look, they have to stop for power cells and on and on. This is where we go from uh, zipping along, if you want to call it that, at, well, put it this way. I live in the Atlanta area. Uh, the speed limit on the local interstates is 55 to 65. People usually are driving between 80 and 100. If that's the pacing of what we think of as the actual Star Wars films, minus, you know, the middle section, say, of Phantom Menace and stuff like that. And uh, this series is running along probably more at speed limit, 55 to 65. This is where, oop, like what happened to me when I was going to training a couple of weeks ago, oop, there's an overturned tractor trailer. Now only one or two lanes are open and everybody's crawling along at like 20 or 30 at the absolute fastest. Yeah. Everything grinds almost to a halt for a little bit at this point in the story and it just seems to drag. And this is the beginning of that dragging. So this issue still makes me groan, but at least we're moving on to the next stage or the next act of the story and we're finally introducing some new components, the lightsaber-wielding stormtroopers and Valorum, that are intriguing as we move further along in the series. You know, and a couple things that, that jump up to me, too. Obviously, the Death Star, the battle station in this case, isn't a Death Star. It isn't a planet killer, I would guess. I mean, otherwise, why not just blow the planet up and call it a day? I mean, that, that was obviously the, the uh, big change there for that battle station. And then the other one is the power cells, you know, uh, White Sun makes a comment to Starkiller, you know, about the power cells getting caught with it will be like, you know, the same fate that happened to the other guys. And I'm like, wait, you're on a planet that isn't part of the Empire. So how was having a power cell equal to a death sentence? Like, I that didn't quite line up. Like, what's it matter that you're holding a power cell? They're going to kill you now. I mean, aren't they already trying to kill you? Like, that was just a really stupid line. <laughs> so it was just funny just to have that pop up. But yeah, the whole Death Star aspect, like, it isn't so much the threat, but more the potential of a nonstop battle. It kind of reminds me more of what the actual Star Destroyers are, you know? I mean, like, oh, crud, you know, here's one, you know, it's a symbol of Imperial might, which kind of makes you wonder, are there more of these Death Stars in, in this type of universe? Or, or, you know, or was it like with Star Wars where it was just the one major battle station, but this one just didn't have the ability to blow up planets? Yeah, and that's just, it's another of these things that makes me glad that Lucas did several more revisions to all of this. The Empire at this point is this sort of nebulous entity that is dangerous and trying to take over the planet, but we don't have that sense of menace from the actual space fortress yet, especially given how close they came, at least it sounds like, to being able to take it down or take out its power during that original battle. And it also doesn't help this story the way things are going to wind up playing out in the end. I don't want to spoil anything for those who are reading these along with us, including some of the readers who have actually emailed us asking, when the heck are we going to start to, to record this? We actually got an email asking, when will we start talking about this the morning that we got together to record it? Um, the way that, that the space battle will wind up working out in terms of who is flying for the good guys it really is kind of lame by the end of this series. And it makes 
the, the, the threat of the space fortress all the more dull, quite frankly. Um, which is kind of, again, kind of the, the term, term that I would use for a lot of this. This is just not a particularly exciting story. It feels like something we would have seen in a serial back then, and granted, that's what Lucas was trying to do, and more power to him for trying to make something that evoked the serials of his childhood. Mm-hmm. But reading this as someone now, heck, I think even reading this as someone anytime probably past the mid-80s, this would not have done it. This would not have fit the bill. This feels more Buck Rogers than it feels Star Wars. And in that sense, and, and, and since we're kind of rounding out the episode here, for those who are interested in this and are wondering whether or not to check it out, I think what you're getting from both of us is this idea that it's not the story that's compelling. It's the differences and it's the artwork. This is a study in what Star Wars could have been. And in that sense, it's like going through and watching the holiday special. It's like what I've done with my From the Star Wars Home Video Library series on YouTube with things like looking at the different versions of the films on home video and talking about what type of things have changed or checking out uh, the Clone Wars and seeing what things were cut out for the aired version versus the home video version and that sort of thing. It's a study in reading a story, not necessarily to enjoy the story per se, but to see how that story relates to the story we are more familiar with. And in that Mm -hmm. sense, it's a really cool thing. But at the same time, if you're reading this just to have an enjoyable, fun sci-fi adventure, um, if you're thinking of it as a Star Wars adventure, it is going to probably let you down quite a bit. If you're going for a you know flashbang sci-fi adventure that's not Star Wars, as long as you can imagine the Mystery Science Theater 3000 character sitting in front of this while watching it, or put this maybe in the same context as something you might have seen in the days of... Gosh, I don't know, Troughton, uh, the second doctor of Doctor Who, uh, relative to something you might see today with the 11th or 12th doctors. Um, I think you'll kind of know what you're getting into and maybe be able to enjoy it. But if you walk into this expecting something that to modern audiences is going to appeal as a sci-fi tale, I think you're going to be let down. And the last thing that I think any Star Wars fan would want is to see one of the last series from Dark Horse, and one that is so unique uh, and so perhaps important in the study of Star Wars turn out to be something that falls as flat as I think a lot of times this one does. We have to walk into it with the right mindset to enjoy it for what it is, which is a study in Star Wars, rather than what it really is not, which is an attempt to tell an engaging tale. It's telling Lucas's rough draft tale, and even Lucas realized it wasn't as engaging as it should have been. And yet here it is. All right. Now, before we wrap things up, we're going to cover the covers of this episode, which is just covers one, two and three. Uh, issue one has got a really cool little cover. Uh, it's reminiscent to some of the old Star Wars, you know, the original Star Wars New Hope posters and stuff. Uh, it's got characters that aren't all in these three issues yet. Han Solo. You got General Skywalker in the front. I believe it's Princess Leia in a pilot's garb with a blaster. And the first Sith Lord, which I had, you know, when all this came out, I assumed that the Sith Lord with the samurai style mask was Darth Vader. Turns out not so much the case. Or that's just a generic mask that many of these people are wearing. Uh, But I I really like it. You got all the other characters kind of around it. Uh, Darth Vader on this one has a very Christian Bale kind of look to him. Uh, And Kane Skywalker has kind of like a... uh, 
oh, I don't know, the imp's bodyguard from uh, Game of Thrones kind of look to it. And, of course, you know, you see what, uh, I, you know, I don't know. It's it's like a Zeb character that looks like the concept of the original Chewbacca. Maybe that's Chewbacca. I, I, you know, I, as a disclaimer here, I am literally reading these my first time through as we go. I got the first two issues and then stopped waiting to get it all to read it all at once. Uh, so I'm actually taking this as a step-by-step. So when we get to the very end and I give my final thoughts, it'll be on the series as a whole, whereas this is just as we've gone. And so I don't know exactly what's coming up, like Nathan, who's already done a lot more research on this. But I really like this cover. It's kind of cool. The second cover is uh, very reminiscent to it as well. You've got uh, you got Anakin and General Skywalker fighting with their lightsabers, that, that scene where you know Anakin just kissed the girl kind of thing. But Anakin's going to, ah, look, you caught me. Uh, and then above that, you've got him and Luke both looking out and lay on the side. And you got the Death Star and the big atomic bomb looking explosion. That's like the Empire Strikes Back, which is kind of cool as well. You get to the third one. I, I actually I kind of like the third one probably the best. Uh, it's got Desert Ambush and it's got a picture of Luke. And uh, Luke doesn't look as old per se as he does in most of the stuff, but. He definitely looks like he's more in his prime at, at the age he is, and he's fighting two of the stormtroopers with the white lightsabers. Of course, it's on what looks like Tatooine, so of course, you know, Desert Ambush with all the bright of the sun kind of washes his out. You can tell his is red at the bottom, uh, but as it goes up to the top, it looks white because like the, the, the flare, I guess you would say, and theirs just look white. So I, I really like that effect to it and stuff, and it's got just the right grittiness that I like. So I was really kind of enjoying that. Yeah, for these, I would say that number one is my favorite, but number one's got a lot of different uh, variants of it, albeit all designed around the same idea, that you've got uh, Luke in the foreground, you've got Han to his left or to his right, our left looking at him, Leia to our right of Luke, you've got the Sith from issue number one from Utapau in the background with his lightsaber ignited, you have the Battle Station slash Death Star, you have a whole bunch of those uh, Aquilean Starfighters and some Star Destroyers flying by, you kind of down to the bottom left, very, very small, you have Darth Vader, you have uh, Kane Starkiller, and then to the right, along with a couple more of those Starfighters, you have R2-D2, C-3PO, the Palace of Light, and Chewbacca. It reminds me very much of the Star Wars posters that we would have seen in theaters that we can actually... Uh, check out and things like the cover of the original Marvel uh, issue number one. It reminds me similarly of that. Um, of the different versions, the regular one was done by Nick Runge, uh, which is pretty cool. It works very well. The the art, of course, is consistent with the other covers and feels a lot like what we see on the inside of the comic. So it's probably my favorite out of them for that reason, though the colors are rather dark, uh, kind of washed out by shadow. I actually really, really like the variant of this done by Jan Dersima, though she draws the characters, especially Leia, uh, more different in terms of variances than the variances in any of these other ones that are designed around the same look and feel. Uh, but I've always been a fan of Jan Dersima's artwork, uh, going back to, you know, Republic on backwards, uh, even back to The Dream back in the old Marvel series. And then you've got a version by Douglas Wheatley, which actually is my least favorite of them, uh, kind of making Kane look like a dyed mustached Sean Connery, and uh, Luke kind of looking like, what if Santa Claus dropped only a couple of pounds and became a Jedi? Um, just not as big a fan of that one. <laughs> and then there is a variant by uh, John Cassidy that is completely different than the others, that's more like what we got with a lot of the covers 
of the VHS releases of A New Hope, where you've got the, Luke standing there with the lightsaber above his head, where there's sort of the, uh, the gleam going up and left and right coming out of it, the droids behind, uh, Leia right in front of him. Of course, very different context here. You have those uh, Aqualand starfighters flying the way that we would have seen X-Wings, the battle station in the background, and the head in the background, as opposed to being Vader, is that original Sith Lord from issue number one, only, and this is the one thing that takes me out of it, um, he looks A in his eyes, he looks stoned, quite frankly, and his cowl, or his, his hood, is resting at an odd angle on his head, as if he just got up and hasn't had a chance to straighten it yet. Uh, were it not for that, that might be my favorite version of, of the number one covers, given that it's such a different variant. But uh, for now, well, I would say the one by Runge or the one by Dursum is my favorite of those uh, variants. Getting back to that one by John Cassidy, if you follow Luke's lightsaber, how it, you know, he's got it blasting up and then there's the two beams that go across. If you follow the ones that go across, it's almost like that Vader like head above the beam is slightly shifted. <laughs> like his eyebrows don't line up. The side of his head doesn't quite line up. Yeah. The Vader mask is definitely the thing that throws that one off. The one thing I like about that one though is, is, and you mentioned it too, that it was different, but it's Luke and Leia from the movie and it's Luke and Leia from the comic having the same poses, even though their backstory and who they are are totally different. I thought that was brilliant. Um, yeah, the Vader, though, on this one, because it's not even Vader in the story, I think that, for me, is the same thing that throws me out of it. Um, I, I'm with you, though. The number one one is probably my favorite, with number three being my second, though. Yeah, well, I would say I mean, number two works really well. It's got, again, that movie poster-type feel to it, so, you know, no issues there with that one. I think it's another of these where you got to kind of laugh because... There is a scene in the book or in the, the story where you've got Anakin and Luke clashing lightsabers. It makes it here look as if it's something different than it is, but it is what we got. Kind of like trailers tend to misrepresent scenes as it's trying to show uh, the cool action of a story. Uh, the Empire Strikes, definitely amusing, given, of course, we'll find that Strikes Back will be uh, the sequel to the New Hope that finally got made. And Desert Ambush w looks pretty well, although I will say that of the... Three of these, of one, two, and three, not counting the different variants of number one, I would say three is probably my least favorite, because it's the one that looks the least like a movie poster in this case. I like the movie poster aspect that we get with one and three that we just, or one and two, that we just don't get with number three. But that's just a, a matter of taste. I always like the movie yeah. poster style covers more than just about anything else. Well, and I can I, I can give you that on because when you look at all of them as a whole, they do kind of have that movie poster theme. So, yeah, I can, I can see what you're saying there. Although I do have to wonder if you look at number one, uh, the tagline longer ago in a galaxy, even further away. You know, we could probably take that to say that this actually is Legends continuity, too. It's just, well, as it says, further back into the past and further off into a different galaxy other than the normal GFFA, but I think we're all smart enough to realize that wasn't their intention, but kind of funny <laughs> the way they tagged that. It, it's a play on words trying to get people to realize it's so different, and yeah, it's longer ago because this was Lucas's draft from early on, blah, 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 but uh, it's just a funny tagline that those of us who are fans of Legends, um, we want sometimes to take date references very literally. And this is one of those cases where if we did, it would be rather amusing. Yeah, you could see a Battlestar Galactica reference in a later story. This has all happened before. <laughs> okay.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zune, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you once again our sponsors, Audible. They got a trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles, and you can explore the Star Wars, Legends, Universe, or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate, because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and... May the force of others be with you. And don't quote us the odds that, well, there'll be any talk of odds in this galaxy further away longer ago. Well, what are the odds that they may come back and write a part two? Ooh, I can answer that. They said in the letters page that won't happen because Lucas never made sequel plans for this version, and they're not going to simply make it up without Lucas's input which makes it, well, for Dark Horse, impossible, and for Marvel, I'd say it's still pretty unlikely. And they also said, and they're making more Star Wars. It's called Episode 7, because all roads lead to Episode 7. <laughs> Anakin, and you've got General Starkiller. God, why do I keep doing that? You've got General Skywalker. There is at one point where they stop, and Leia and Luke hop out. They have found a secret way. Uh, you might want to say that again. <laughs> Lay in Anakin. Oh, that, what did I say? You said Lay in Luke, but oh, you did it flawlessly. No. <laughs>